Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. You know, we wanted to talk about European, and especially German, views of the war in Ukraine today. And we still will. You know what? For example, is an IRIST? What's up with those Leopard tanks? Uh, but then a Russian Su-27 fighter jet crashed into an American MQ-9 Reaper above the Black Sea. And the guest that we plan to have on, well, she knows a lot about drones, so we would be remiss if we didn't ask her about it. With us today is Ulrike Franke. I'm, I probably just butchered that, even though I think I did it right in the, the All preamble. All good. <laughs> she is a po- senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She is an expert in all things Germany, drones, and AI. She's got a PhD from Oxford, and she hosts a podcast on German defense, the name of which I will absolutely not try to pronounce. Um, thank you so much today for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right. So first things first. What happened over the Black Sea? Yes, well, actually, we, today, the day that we're recording, we got a video recording of this incident. Um, the incident being that there was a U.S. Reaper drone, MQ-9 Reaper drone, that was flying over the Black Sea, and the U.S. says over international waters. Um, and a Russian, or actually two Russian fighter jets, started to, well, basically harass it. So they were dumping fuel, and that's something you can actually see on the on the video. Um, and at one point, apparently, one of the fighters kind of clipped the propeller of the drone, or in any case, the drone was brought down, was, uh, yeah, crashed uh, into, into the sea. And of course, the U.S. criticized this quite heavily because it was, as they say, in over international waters. Um, and the Russians, as far as I could gather from their statements, basically said, yes, we were there, but it wasn't exactly our fault and we didn't, we didn't bring it down. And also there was an interesting line in the Russian statement that said something along the lines of, you know, for the duration of this uh, special military operation, this isn't quite international water anyway. I don't quite know. This isn't, this is more of an international law um, uh, issue, but uh, yeah, we had a confrontation between a U.S. and a Russian aircraft, and the U.S. aircraft went down. And I think this is one of those moments where we can be happy that drones are remotely piloted and the pilot didn't go down with the drone. This is a, a, a Reaper is, this was a spy drone, essentially, right? 
Yes, I mean, the Reaper is a so-called hunter-killer drone, so it it can be armed. It often is armed. It is actually one of the, the drones worldwide that it can carry the, the biggest amount of, you know, missiles and bombs and all of this. But of course, as basically any drone, it also carries a lot of uh, intelligence gathering surveillance equipment. And in this case, it reportedly was used to gather intelligence um, over the Black Sea, wasn't armed and... Uh, yeah, is now at uh, some, I don't know how many uh, meters uh, down in the Black Sea. And Russia said it's going to work to recover it, right? Or that's the, the implication? I Yeah, I wonder I wonder about that. I mean, they can try. Um, I've asked, actually been asked, and I don't actually know the answer to this, to what extent the U.S. Um, is kind of able to, you know, self-destruct elements or wipe elements of this just drone when it comes down. I think the US had sa- has said it 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 wiped uh kind of um, remotely some some data from the drone. I don't think there's a real kind of self-destruct button or anything like that, but I actually don't know. So maybe maybe you do. Um so I'm I'm curious to see whether Russia is actually retrieving it and and whether it really will gather that much um relevant uh, intelligence i'm not so sure i mean this isn't quite the incident like when iran brought down again with certain question mark but when a when a kind of u.s drone um uh, crashed uh in in iran and that was a a more experimental secret design and so this was really kind of unfortunate from a u.s point of view the reaper is 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 well known i mean of course the russians can still gather something from from that but i don't think I wouldn't think that this is the biggest concern here. I think the 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 the, the real problem, I mean, the real problem, the, the issue really is that while well, this was a, a very unfriendly encounter between U.S. and and Russian forces, and that's something we like to avoid. It's an interesting situation because, of course, if this had been a manned jet, this could have been the start of war, right? So, yeah, in a, in a way, I mean, kind of this this is. This can go both ways because, yes, you're absolutely right. If that had been a man jet and a U.S. pilot or pilots would have been hurt or even killed in such an incident, that would have been a, a huge scandal. And the U.S. administration would really have had been pushed to respond in, in a certain way. And now with the drone, the Biden administration has much more kind of leeway as to how to respond. And so far, they've really tried to you know, react in a very measured way. And of course, they've condemned the attack in in strong terms, but they're not immediately reacting kind of militarily. And we had a similar incident in in June 2019 when um, Iranians shot down a a Global Hawk. So this is another incident than the one I just mentioned, um, a Global Hawk drone uh, over the Strait of Hormuz. And um, the Trump administration kind of, you know, thought about responding militarily, um, but that reportedly was uh, aborted and and the administration kind of just responded with sanctions and maybe cyber attacks. So it kind of gives you more leeway if there is no pilot being heard. However, the other coin of the matter, sorry, the other side of the, the coin um, is that um, maybe the Russians just wouldn't have acted in the way they did had it been a manned aircraft, right? I mean, they were really harassing this this aircraft. I, I, we don't know whether they wanted to bring it down. There's a lot of speculation that, that maybe it kind of went wrong and they didn't actually want to want to bring it down. Um, but they wouldn't, they most likely wouldn't have taken the same risks had it been a, a manned plane exactly because of this risk of ec- escalation. So there's, there's actually a lot of discussion and, and, and war games and everything being done on, on the escalatory potential of drones. And so far, the answer is it kind of can go both ways. 
but at least it does give um the side that has the drone a bit more leeway in in terms of how to respond so i think this is this is good because you don't want to be in a situation where you are kind of pushed to do something that you don't necessarily want to do just because you know you have to react if it had wanted to or if the us if it had been armed and it wanted to defend itself well i mean let me ask, rephrase this these kinds of drones are not typically armed for surface for air to air combat either, right? It's usually like a hellfire that's for air to ground. So it's these drones are kind of sitting ducks if someone finds them, correct? Yeah. So the large majority of drones worldwide really aren't built to defend themselves against well, any kind of attack, whether from the ground or from the air. So they don't really do dog fights. Um, there have been kind of first tests, and um, I think we're going to see this this more in the future where drones are being used to, well, they can defend themselves in the air or, or could even uh, attack other aerial vehicles, whether it's manned or, or unmanned, though especially unmanned, I, I would say, because they're kind of, um, they're, they're, they're uh, not as fast as, as manned aircraft. Um, but so far, yeah, most drones can't defend themselves against this. Again, this Reaper wasn't armed at all as as far as we know uh so so it couldn't have done that that anyway um and incidentally this is actually why i usually speak of armed drones rather than combat drones because in my view a combat drone would indeed be a, a drone that can yeah defend itself against attack and, and then do kind of aerial dog fights and the large majority of armed drones these days cannot do this but this is one of the directions that development is going yeah, the combat role they kind of fill is more. Uh, I mean, I know that we we talk a lot about how they're changing the battlefield and uh, how they're revolutionizing warfare, et cetera, et cetera. But they tend to fill uh, fairly traditional combat roles, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the big discussion, right? Right? How revolutionary are drones really? That was incidentally kind of the the title of my my doctoral thesis, and um, there are many different ways of of looking at this. And it really, as with so many new technologies, novel technologies, it's not just the technology, it's how you use it. And you can use drones in very kind of typical uh, roles. We just use unmanned systems, remotely piloted systems to replace manned systems. And that can make a lot of sense because it you know can be cheaper, it can be more available. We see this, by the way, in, in Ukraine, or we saw this in, in Nagorno-Karabakh when, when Armenia fought Azerbaijan. Um, the big advantage of drones here was was in part simply the numbers and that they were there because, you know, Azerbaijan and Armenia aren't big militaries. They have a limited number of, of manned aircraft and fighter jets. And if you can use drones to take on some of the roles of these manned aircraft, that's a huge, that's a huge bonus. That's a huge plus. Um, that may not necessarily be revolutionary, but it can be very, very useful. So that's, that can be good enough. But of course, you can also, you know, get with drones capabilities that you didn't have before. Um, the, the kind of, 24 hour, seven days a week surveillance that drones can give you at very low cost um, and at low hierarchical level. So, you know, even just kind of infantry soldiers on, on, on the battlefield can get access to drone surveillance and the, the intelligence that drone, drones gather. That's quite revolutionary, I would say, just because this is something that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, that's the kind of information 10 or 20 years ago only, you know, high level commanders would have and not to the same extent. So the kind of effort to lift the fog of the, the war, which of course you can never really do, but, but still, um, I think that's, that's relatively revolutionary. 
There are other elements such as, and we saw this particularly in the US where you had soldiers kind of commuting into war, you know, really people living somewhere in near Las Vegas, commuting um, into their shifts at Creech Air Force Base, being on several different, uh, in several, several different war zones sometimes, you know, first Iraq, then Afghanistan, and then kind of go home to the kids. Like this is quite revolutionary in terms of the experience of war. Um, we, we didn't have that before. Uh, so, so there are definitely elements that are, that, that, that are new and revolutionary. Swarm technology related to drones is also something that I think is worth keeping an eye on. And there you may also have genuine new capabilities, military capabilities that you haven't, didn't have before. But yeah, not, not every kind of drone on the battlefield does something completely new and kind of revolutionizes, uh, how, how wars are being fought, but simply their availability, their, comparatively lower price really difficult to generalize as you can imagine but they're comparatively lower price um and 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 the surveillance that they that they provide is is already quite something um for a lot of armed forces they're much cheaper too you you can do a lot of things that you used to be able to do much cheaper like a suicide drone is cheaper than a cruise missile right yeah it really obviously it really depends right you can't a, it's not like for like, you can't, even, even, you know, a cruise missile and a suicide drone, yes, fair enough. Often you may be able to substitute one for the other. And if the suicide drone is cheaper, which it normally is, yes, it's cheaper, but sometimes they don't fill the same roles. Also, you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, but a Reaper is much cheaper than an F-35. I'm like, yeah, that's true, but you don't necessarily use it for the same thing. So it it is difficult to generalize, but but yes, overall, Drones can be really cheap, especially the kind of smaller systems, army systems, all of this, and can have an, an important impact. So, all yeah, taking everything together, I, I, I would agree with this, but I think we need to be a little bit careful to just generalize that drones are cheaper. And especially, you also have a lot of research now into kind of higher end systems. Um, I mean, the, the Reaper is already not cheap. I mean, it's double digit millions and, and the global hawk, I think is more like a 120 million, you know, it's not nothing. Um, and, and the Europeans are, are building, uh, systems, um, partly to, uh, accompany men's manned aircraft. And there's a lot of money being spent there. So it, the, the price tag can also go up quite a bit, but you also see, yeah, very cheap systems. Uh, being used and, and yeah, part of their attraction indeed is their, is their price, which also means that you can just have a lot of drones. I was really surprised though with the Reaper. I mean, the 35 million is what I read. Hmm. I mean, there are a bunch of fighter jets that are cheaper than that. Um, I mean, I just, it just seemed like a very large amount of money. What, why would something like that cost so much? It's got hmm. a propeller. I mean, and it's got, it's remote control. I, I just. Those cameras are real nice, Jason. I'm, I know yeah. they're real. Yeah. Anyway, I just was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I was just a little surprised. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on what different military equipments cost. So I find it difficult to compare. I mean, you are right. The Reaper and the Predator in particular, right? The Predator is the kind of younger brother or no the other way around in a way like predator came first of course and um the, the predator I, I i vividly remember talking to a a german um military engineer right and, and germany had a long discussion on, on buying uh, drones armed drones and which ones and the predator was in discussion at one point and this kind of german engineer being very much a german engineer was you know really 
looking down on the predator being like you know this is a model aircraft with like a lawnmower um, um, uh, motor and you know it can barely carry its its weapons and, and all of this and partly he was right i mean literally when they put the first hellfire missile under under a predator in early 20 uh 2001 they they really were worried that the the wing would come off um from the the force of the hellfire missile just being shot um and this is not because it's you know terrible flimsy aircraft that's not not what i'm saying but it's just that drones tend to be you know like lightly built that's the whole point um they they don't carry human beings so they can be quite um yeah, they were supposed to be be light and everything, and so I, I think I, I I agree with you that the airframe of most of these drones isn't shouldn't be super super expensive. Um, but I think it's it's a combination of yeah the equipment that they are carrying, and they can carry all kind of equipment, including extremely expensive ones. Uh, development costs, all of all of that kind of stuff. But I can't tell you specifically for the. For the Reaper, I mean, A, what exactly it does cost. I've seen similar numbers as you, but it always depends on what you what you factor in. Um, and also what the specific predator, sorry, specific Reaper was carrying and what makes this more or less expensive. Angry Planet will be back in a minute. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we're back. I almost feel like we need a different word to distinguish between so when we say drone would cover such a wide oh yeah variety of things right Be, you know we i think for a long time in the minds of people and probably still today you they think of the reaper or the predator right these large um hunter killers uh spies but also uh adept assassins um but i think when i talk about drones in ukraine i'm thinking more specifically of like off the shelf quadcopters yeah. Um, that are that are that have little cameras that are watching people in foxholes and dropping uh, slightly altered munitions on top of them that are much cheaper, that are more ubiquitous, that are easier to get a hold of. Um, and I think that there's such a world of difference between those two pieces of tech um, that I wish we had a different word that was more common. Uh, that's a, a side yeah. rant. No, no, you and me both. And this is this is definitely a, a problem because a drones in the military realm, the term drone really describes everything from, say, the Black Hornet, which is this tiny helicopter, looks like a toy helicopter, um, just slightly more expensive, and takes off from the palm of a soldier's hand, and it's doing surveillance and reconnaissance basically over the next hill or rather the next compound wall. Um, and it goes from from the Black Hornet to the Global Hawk, the one I mentioned earlier, so-called HAIL, high endurance, um, high altitude, long endurance 
a system which you know has the 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 wingspan of like a commercial airliner uh which costs again something like 120 million and is is completely different and then you've got armed systems like 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 the, the reaper and others um and and as you were alluding to Matthew now we also see the the civilian commercial drones entering the battlefield and this is actually a really interesting development right for 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 decades if not centuries drones were exclusively military um and drone development goes back a long time and it's really difficult to say you know when did it really come about we had drones in the vietnam war and kosovo all that but i usually say you know around the the, the year 2000 the kind of you know stars aligned for drone development and this is really when when drones took off um pun intended um, but but then around you know ten years or so later the the commercial and the civilian drone world also uh, developed quite a bit and um, now now you have these extremely capable civilian systems I mean you and I can buy of Amazon or or wherever um, drones for a few hundred or a few thousand dollars that that are amazingly capable and they are re-entering the battlefield not being used by by the ukrainians for example for military purposes and and yeah as you say all these are also all called drones so this is this is quite quite difficult and a bit annoying and i mean i used to joke um every article about drones independently of on on what exactly they, they were on had a picture of a of a predator you know, you could get you could get articles about you know drones being sold for um, real estate uh, uh, visits and and whatever um, wedding pictures, and you had the picture of a predator, so completely nonsensical. But in a way, it has now changed because now you often get the picture of the quadcopter, even when it's about you know military drones. And so, yeah, it's 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 not ideal, but but here we are, and I don't think. You know, when I started working on this, there even was still the discussion on you shouldn't say drone, it should be unmanned aerial vehicle or uncrewed aerial vehicle or remotely piloted vehicle and the the corresponding uh, abbreviations. And by now, I mean, I've I've given up on this. It's a drone. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the military always has a specific way they want a thing to be referenced and it never quite works out the yeah. way they want it to. Um. Another thing I think is interesting that is kind of born by drones that I have to ask you about. Uh, how how much are you on Telegram? By chance, I, I'm not on Telegram though. No. no, you're not on Telegram at all. No. Um, uh, I was wondering what you thought of. So I feel like this war in Ukraine is certainly not the first war that's been been online and has like an internet component to it. Mm-hmm. But this, there's something different about this one, and I feel like some of it is supported by a Telegram, which is this completely like unfettered, uncensored form of communication uh, in a time when so many of the the different spaces on the internet are kind of clamping down and censoring violence and, and language and this kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, without making a judgment call about what those about the policies of tech companies. To be clear, um, I'm not anyway. Uh, but we've got all these cameras in the sky. Yeah. They're capturing all this footage. And we have this constant stream from both Russia and Ukraine of footage of people being killed from the drones. Um, and I'm wondering what you think of this new kind of like rush of propaganda on both sides mm-hmm. that's created, that's been, that technology has allowed and kind of supercharged. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. So I'm I'm not on Telegram, but I am spending more time on Twitter than I probably should. And and there, of course, we, you have similar um, kind of videos and, and and clips by drones. So I think the 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 possibility to use the video and the kind of intelligence you gather with drones by design to use those for information warfare and propaganda purposes is is huge and is something that indeed we see a lot uh, in in the war in Ukraine but but also before so i think in a way the first um group that really used this fact was isis right that the the terrorist non-state um organization that used civilian drones again often you know really simple quadcopters um and it kind of went through different stages of development and and the first stage of the development but it kept doing that um throughout the whole time was using drones to just film their attacks film their so-called caliphate film you know whatever they wanted to show and 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 put these clips as propaganda um online and then further they developed to kind of use it for yeah, surveillance and then even even attacks, booby trapping these drones and, and all of that. Um anyway, so so we saw this here, um, and we are now seeing this a lot in um in the the war in Ukraine. So the Ukrainians in particular, uh, but I think this has to do with kind of the Western um information space being more dominated by the Ukrainian side than the Russian side for various reasons. Um so the Ukrainians in particular use uh post online clips of of uh, videos shot by drone, for example, attacks on tanks. You, you, I'm sure most of you listeners have seen attacks where, you know, you have even hand grenades, a kind of small weapons being dropped right into a tank, uh, into the, the opening of a tank and then exploding. Uh, you had videos by drone where Russian soldiers surrendered, uh, you know, uh, things like that, or, or drones following Russian soldiers back to their uh, to their their bases and them being attacked, so I, I think this 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 is definitely playing a huge a huge role. And yeah, the, the way you basically need to look at this is that with any anything and everything you do with a drone, you basically have a camera camera team with you the whole time, and that is of course extremely useful for for surveillance. Sorry, this is of course extremely useful for information warfare and propaganda that purposes you just choose the videos that make you look best and make your enemy look the worst do drones bring equality on the battlefield in a way um if you can't afford a fleet of f-35s but you can afford different you know levels of drone does that actually bring some level of equality that wouldn't have been there without them hmm this is such a fascinating question when you think about where where drones kind of started. Again, if you take the kind of year 2000 as a starting point, because initially drones were very much the weapon of the stronger party. Um, and it, even there were even discussing, discussions about this being completely kind of unfair, which is always a weird thing to say in, in warfare, I guess, but kind of unfair that you had, you know, the U.S. military with its almighty drones um surveilling and attacking um yeah people uh not necessarily even more armed forces but more like militias and non-state groups that that had nothing uh, similar and so they they had no way of of defending themselves and and all of this and now it's kind of the other way around where drones may actually as you as you alluded to give the the weaker party um or Kind of the, the 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 poorer party, the less well off um, and, and less well equipped uh, armed forces, uh, a way of 
um, yeah, of coming on on equal footing. Um, I think it's it's a bit hard to generalize. So I you if you have you know say the might the military might of the U.S. military against you, just being able to buy and field a few drones, it's not really going to save you. But but I think depending on how your your war is going, um, drones can have an important impact on on giving you capabilities you didn't have before. Um, I mean, for non-state actors, non-state actors didn't used to have arm. Uh, sorry, didn't used to have air forces, right? And now they can have really relevant airborne capabilities. Um, be it Hezbollah, which admittedly is already quite you know military, but but Hezbollah, ISIS, um, even South American drug cartels uh, can can have so-called air forces by by having having drones. So that's that's already quite something. And yeah, smaller militaries. Um, now don't need as many you know, fighter jets and, and, and other things because they can fulfill a few of the functions and roles with much cheaper uh, drones. So it, it does play a certain equalizing role, but then, yeah, then it really depends on the kind of context of the war of the capabilities to fight drones. Uh, I don't know whether we want to go there, but one of the interesting kind of insights from the, the war in Ukraine is also I mean, how important it is, of course, to be able to fight drones. And I'm really so impressed by how well the Ukrainians has been do, have been doing on, on several drone models. Uh, and a lot of Europeans are kind of looking at this thinking, oh, we really need to build up our, our aerial defenses against drones and other similar, uh, uh systems. So yeah, it, it's hard to, it's hard to, to kind of really predict, but I think there is there, I think you're onto something, um, when, when you talk about the kind of equal, equality increasing factor, um, that, that, they bring to the battlefield, at least in some contexts. Talk about uh, talk about counter drone technologies and what is and isn't working in Ukraine, because I know that for a long time there's been kind of uh, what I would call almost like a pseudo scientific boom around people trying to sell various counter drone technologies, and you have like these big weird giant guns that that supposedly mm-hmm. shoot directed energy, and some of them work and some of them don't, and people shooting nets into the sky and all kinds of things. I and, like the nets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the thing about war um, is you find out what does and doesn't work very quickly. Um, so what is, what is working in Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. And then you're right. I mean, the Ukraine in some tragic way has become a kind of testing ground for a lot of military equipment, uh, be, be drones or anti-drone. Uh, capabilities. So there, there's a huge range of anti-drone capabilities and anti-drone systems, partly due to the fact what we were describing earlier that there is such a huge range of drones. And of course, you need a very different way of shooting down a, a quadcopter that weighs, you know, a few kilo, uh, and there's a few centimeter, um, in, in, in diameter, um, and shooting down a Bayraktar TB2. That's a kind of armed Turkish drone that the Ukrainians have been using. Maybe comparable to the predator, not quite, but but something along those those lines. Um, and you also need different systems depending on whether it's a, it's an active war zone or it's kind of a civilian realm or anyway. So there's a there's a big range. Um, so one area that's definitely important is the kind of electronic warfare area. So this is intercepting drones by jamming their link to the ground and to their operators. Um, if there is a link, of course, this is, this is relevant for remotely piloted systems, not for those that are more autonomous or automated. Um, sometimes even hacking these these links, although this isn't really done that much uh, yet. Um, just overwhelming the, the link so that 
yeah, again, it loses the the link to the operator and basically just hovers or, or crashes or anything like that. There are kinetic ways shooting down drones um, in the same way that you would shoot down manned aircraft. Um, and this is this has shown to be quite successful in Ukraine. The big issue here is the price tag, right? So um, Ukraine has gotten a, a big range of different anti-aerial systems, German Gepard, the Iris T system, Patriots, um, you know, a, a lot of other things. And, and some of them you can actually use for drones. But the problem is if you use a very expensive anti-aerial system against a very cheap drone, that's not super sustainable. I mean, it can be sustainable for a while, especially if you have, you know, support. Um, and it can even make sense militarily because the cost calculation isn't just how much does my anti-aerial system cost and how much cost does their drone cost, but also how much does the thing cost that I'm protecting? A hospital, a civilian camp, whatever. Um, so it can still make sense to, to kind of, um, shoot, uh, in, in German, you would say shoot cannons on sparrows. So shoot sparrows with cannons. Um, so that can make sense uh, militarily speaking, but, but still it's, it's not ideal. Um, and then you have indeed intercepting methods that aren't quite as kinetic where you have, for example, nets or other drones, um, kind of very hardened drones. There are great videos. I posted one the other day on, on, on Twitter because I thought it was really interesting where you have kind of a hardened drone that just goes up and kind of smacks into the other, the other system and, and brings it down that way. Not dissimilar to the way that the Russian um, jet did with the, with the, the Reaper. Um, although you wouldn't need a, you wouldn't use a, a, a multi-million jet to do that. Um, there even were tests, uh, with eagles, like the actual bird eagles, uh, going after drones. Of course, here we're in the, in the small civilian realm drones, uh, that, that aren't necessarily armed, but uh, they can be used, for example, around, uh, airports or anywhere where you don't want people flying, um, their, their hobby drones, um, uh, just, just willy nilly. So there is a huge, uh, there's a lot of work being done on this and, yeah, I'm not surprised that a lot of firms are trying to sell their product products because there really is is a lot of money to be to be made here. The big problem is that you it's kind of trying to square a circle because you need to be able to defend against as many systems as possible because it's all nice and well if you have this great anti-drone system against drone type A and then you're being attacked by drone type B like that's that's no good so you want to be able to defend against a, a huge range of systems you want it to be cost effective it usually your system usually needs to be quite mobile because the whole point is that drones can attack you anywhere i mean this is what we're seeing in in Ukraine so if you have a static system I mean, it's fine if you want to defend the, the White House, Buckingham Palace, a prison, or, or you know, a uh, camp. Um, but but that's that may not be be good enough for the rest of your country. So this is this is relatively difficult, and a lot of um, firms are working on this. The Ukrainians, um, so far, I mean, I apparently they've been most successful really with shooting things down kinetically with the various anti anti aerial systems that they they've they've gotten. Um, and particular when it comes to the, the Shahid 136, the kind of Iranian kamikaze drone. I'm sure most of you listeners have heard of that Russia is using in great numbers to attack Ukraine, well, pr pretty much anywhere and destroy critical infrastructure and, and attack civilians. And the Ukrainians have been really quite successful in intercepting most of them. Um, I've heard numbers from 60 to 80 or even 90%. 
the problem, of course, is that even if you intercept 90%, 10% still go through and, and destroy, uh, yeah, critical infrastructure and kill civilians. So that's still, uh, terrible. But, um, still these numbers are relatively, um, impressive in, in my view. So artificial intelligence is having a moment right now. Um, you know, they just launched chat GPT four. We're mostly seeing it. I think last year it was AI art. Now we're looking at generative text models. Uh, but there is a lot of other stuff going on with artificial intelligence. The military is extremely keen on it. Uh, what, when we talk about AI in the military, what exactly do we mean? Yeah, this is such a huge, um, area um as many know already the term artificial intelligence is quite it's quite difficult and quite broad and can include a lot of things and then you know ai in the military realm um can also enable so many different systems and so many different functions that is difficult to to generalize um some areas where i think it will have or already has kind of the biggest impact is I mean, most kind of obviously in the area of data analysis. I mean, this is literally what, what these computers were were initially built for. And before AI, we we're talking a lot about big data. And so, so you know, the ability to analyze uh, huge amounts of data and find patterns or find any any um, things you know were in there. This is something that that AI is particularly good at. And I think the one of the earlier and probably the most the best known. Uh, military AI project was Project Maven, a cooperation between Google, other Silicon Valley firms, and the Pentagon, uh, where yeah, they Google and, and other Silicon Valley firms built a uh, an algorithm, basically an AI-enabled system, to go through the hundreds and thousands and millions of hours of data and video feed collected by drones. Um, so, so this is kind of a very typical use, and AI is great for for that. Uh, you can have AI in the in the cyber realm, right, where you kind of automate attacks or or make them way more targeted, and also automate and, and enable your cyber defense. This is a big big uh, thing as well. AI enabled autonomy is, I think, probably the area where there's most interest at the moment um, in the military realm. Autonomy doesn't have to be AI enabled. This is also once again a kind of tricky uh, subject, but but I would say that most most relevant autonomy developments have some element of of AI, i.e. kind of self-learning systems, just because, you know, you want to have a very intelligent, very clever system if you give it AI, sorry, if you give it autonomy. So um, it, it, this is this is linked. Um, and AI-enabled autonomy, I mean, this can be the kind of autonomous drone or the autonomous robot, uh, the system that that really can do a lot of things without being remotely piloted. Uh, so you may have fewer pilots or or even just people on the loop who kind of observe the the drone or the robot doing its thing and and may not necessarily um have their kind of finger on the the button or on the joystick or, or anything like that um but you can also have autonomy in kind of other other systems that don't have to be robots can be you know kind of command and control and and uh, defensive um defensive systems and and all of this um, but even so, so these are all kind of more combat 
relevant functions. I mean, data analysis, I think, can, can go either way. But um, we sometimes also forget the non-combat-related areas where I can also have a big impact, so kind of logistics. And we're kind of being reminded now in the, in the war in Ukraine how important logistics is. Um, and, and AI can help to just make logistics more efficient, uh, cheaper, uh, faster, all of this. So knowing which parts of an aircraft to replace and when, and knowing what you need in stock and when and transport it at the right time, you know, things like that. AI, AI is already doing this. AI is doing this in the, in the civilian realm, right? Um, and so, so this is, yeah, one of those areas also where, where I can play a role. But you see from this kind of long list that there is a lot of, of different functions and capabilities that AI can, can AI enable, make cheaper, make faster, make more clever. Um, and I guess, yeah, the, the holy grail as usual is the kind of new capability that you didn't have before. Um, and I'd say this is primarily, yeah, probably in the area of autonomy and then also related to AI-enabled autonomy swarms. I think the, there, there's a lot of interesting um, tests being done with, with swarms of drones or different units. It doesn't have to be aerial drones, it can be all kinds of things. And so s- several, you know, a dozen, a hundred or even thousands of systems being able to interact with, with each other, communicate with each other and, and, uh, yeah, attack or, or surveil or whatever, do any kind of operation together. This is something that could, could create a genuine new military capability, which is, I think, just the thing that most militaries are, are after with new technologies. It's interesting in one way to me, because artificial intelligence, the complaint is it's not creative. It can't actually, you know, write a sonnet. Although I, I'm not sure that's true, but okay, yeah. let's pretend that it is true. Military applications, it seems like, um, you don't have to be that creative. You just have to synthesize information incredibly quickly and then carry out what needs to be done in response, right? So um, does that make – it sounds like it makes AI a really good fit for military applications. Yeah, absolutely. So on the, on the creativity part, I think this is really difficult because it kind of boils down to this question, like what's creativity anyway? Also, what's intelligence anyway? As you say, can AI write a sonnet? I mean, GPT-4 can. The question is like, is it really a new sonnet? Like, who, who's going to judge that? Like, yes, it's, it hasn't been published like this before, but it has been fed with every other sonnet that has existed in the world. But I guess, you know, every, every poet also, is influenced by all the other poetry um, he or she has, has read. So, so yeah, this is really difficult. Um, there are people, um, I hope I'm, I'm getting his name right. I think it's Kenneth Payne who uh, basically says that AI will really change military strategy and will have AI enabled systems do strategy. And this is going to be the biggest revolution. And, and this would very much link to your creativity uh, a bit. This, this wouldn't just be, you know, AI being yet another system that makes war more deadly or, or, or faster or, or whatever, but really changes the nature or the character of war. Um, I, Honestly, I, I don't know. We see right now in the civilian realm how fast AI develops and things that we thought weren't possible only a little while ago now seem seem really e- easy um, and and yeah easy to do for an AI. So, so I think we'll we'll have quite the impact on on the military realm as as well. But whether it will change the, the nature and character of war, I'm I'm slightly more more skeptical. Um, but once again, as as we were saying about the, the drones, like here also, it's not just 
with AI, there are kind of several layers of, of uncertainty, um, in my view. So the first layer of uncertainty is that you don't, we don't even know where the technology itself will develop, right? This is the GPT-4 um, thing. Like this is still in development, even in the civilian realm. This is the kind of challenge or, or insecurity number one. Then we don't know which military systems it will enable most successfully, or also just where, where countries will put their money in and which military systems really will be will be most AI enabled in the in the future. And then the third level of uncertainty, and this is the one you always have, is this issue of it's not just the new technology, it's also how you use it then once you have it. Um, and yeah, g- given all of this, I find it very, very tricky to predict where, where all of this is going. But um, in the same way as as AI is, is influencing very heavily the civilian realm and will do so even more in the future, we'll see something similar in the, in the um, military realm. And this may be you know anyone who's familiar with the with the literature on revolutions in military affairs knows that there is no agreement whatsoever on how many revolutions in military affairs there were i mean some people say you know like 24 and others basically say 3 um so i don't know the the industrial age uh the digital age and yeah now maybe maybe the ai age i think it's it's definitely it this is this is going to be big but it's not one it's not one thing. It's not the same as the introduction of the tank or the introduction of, of uh, nuclear weapons, which I would be fine with calling uh, revolutions in military affairs. Um, this, this would be bigger and more fundamental and thus also harder to pinpoint. So it is somewhat similar to maybe the digitization of the battle space or yeah, the industrial age. Um, so much more fundamental, but also much more um, distributed in a way. Well, I we were going to talk to you about Germany, but this turned out to be too good a conversation about drones uh, to miss out on. So, <laughs> what do you think, Matthew? I need, I need uh, to come back. <laughs> yeah, we need to we need to have you back because we were we, we wanted to talk to. to somebody about uh, Europe and specifically Germany's relationship to the war in Ukraine. Uh, but that is a whole other episode. <laughs> That we now didn't do. Sorry, audience. <laughs> but, this is still ongoing, so I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's going to be fresh uh, in the minds. I think for a little bit, right? Probably a few years, uh, unfortunately. Oh God, yeah. So, uh, yeah. but yes, it's, it's been it, it's been almost an hour. So I think we will let you go. Thank you so much for coming on and walking us <laughs> so, through this. Sorry for being so long on drones, then. No, no, no I mean, not at all. If you, you want to have me have me back on on German defense and security, I'm always happy to do to do that. And um, yeah, I mean, even if the war ends sooner rather than later, the kind of German security and defense question certainly isn't going away. And there's a whole Zeitenwende happening. I mean, you know, it's all right. yep. new and shiny. Right. So yeah, and I think that. Uh, the the war in Ukraine, I think, is focusing and making people in Germany ask questions about what the role is of defense yeah. in their life and what their role is in the European Union, I would assume. And that's a tease for the next time we have you all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. What's the – tell people the name of your podcast. If they speak German, they could go listen to it. If they speak German, it's called Sicherheitshalber. It's kind of a play on words in terms of like be secure, insecurity, or something, something like that. Sicherheitshalber. Yeah. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe.